0: Please be seated, and if you'd like to turn to Psalm 136, you'll find it on page 598 in the Green Bibles, page 598. So rather than have uh, the reading at this point in the service, we decided to... Uh, used the opportunity with the children with us to, to truly sing out that psalm the way it would have been heard 3,000 years ago in Solomon's great temple. It's, a, it's an antiphonal psalm. That is, you have a leader who speaks the verse and then the crowd responds with the response. And we also know from Jeremiah that he prophesied when the Israelites were in exile in Babylonia he prophesied that the quiet, empty streets of Jerusalem would again one day ring out with this psalm and psalms like it. And God was true to that prophecy, because in Ezra, we read that when they returned, when the remnant returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, they again sang this psalm and others like it as they were rebuilding the temple. You'll notice in the, the text in Our version of the Bible, the response is, his love endures forever. Uh, When we did it all together, we said, for his love has no end. Um, It is claimed by a researcher whose work I read up that the, for his love has no end, becomes less boring for the people using an English translation. It has rhythm, single syllable words, and it's easier to say. That's why we changed it to his love has no end. Uh, The original Hebrew had six syllables as well, as does his love has no end. So it works on on two levels. The word that's translated love is a difficult Hebrew word to translate. Hesed is the word. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness, sometimes mercy, sometimes love. What it conveys to the the Hebrew listener, the Jewish uh, singer of this song, is God's Faithfulness to his covenant, or perhaps we would think of it as his faithfulness to his promises. So that's what we've been declaring. And it's not the only repeated theme in the psalm. We read, For his love has no end, 26 times. That's a clear repeated theme. But we also say, Give thanks to him 12 times, even though it only appears in the text, four times. That might seem slightly odd. But if you look at verses 5, six, and seven. You'll see what I mean. Verses five, six, and seven actually read, give thanks to him who by his understanding made the heavens. Give thanks to him who spread out the earth upon the waters. Give thanks to him who made the great lights. This is a song of thanks and praise. It's like a sandwich. Each verse is like a sandwich. And the top slice of bread is the instruction to give thanks. The bottom slice of bread is the reason to give thanks, for his love has no end. And the filling in between is a statement of praise, something about who God is or what God has done. If we quickly summarize, the statements of praise tell us he is good, he does miracles, he created everything, he rescued his people, he defeated his enemies, he delivered his people to the promised land. He sustains creation. He is God. Now, as you might have suspected, with a published title, God, Darwin, and the Large Hadron Collider, our focus is on creation, which the psalmist focuses on in verses 5 through to 9. We're going to ask three questions. First, what does the Bible say about creation? Secondly, Why have recent events in the world of science thrown these biblical claims into the spotlight? And thirdly, why is it important to me personally to believe in the God who creates? So let us pray before we think about those three questions. Father God, may the eyes of our hearts be open to your word today. And may your spirit prompt us to respond and to change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So using this psalm as our uh, point of reference, if you like, let's look at verse 5. The psalmist writes, who by his understanding made the heavens. That's a clear signal back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a Hebrew way of saying God created everything. God created everything from nothing. One of our creeds puts it, all that is seen and unseen. Verses 6 through to 9 in the psalm then pick up particular events in the six-day creation story of Genesis chapter 1. Separating the land from the sea was God's work on day 3. Creating the sun, the moon, and the stars was God's work on day four. And if we just skip to the end of the psalm, verse 25, we read, he gives food to every creature. Now this, is, uh, this rings bells from the end of day six in the story of creation, where God says to mankind, every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. God's gift, God's promise to sustain his creation. So if the psalmist sees Genesis chapter 1 as his point of reference for praising God the creator, it should also be our point of reference for praising God the creator. But as a 21st century reader, we need to ask, what is Genesis chapter 1? What is it not? What does it say? What does it not say? Well, it's literature, not scientific text. It's poetry, not experimental results and conclusions. It is theology, not scientific hypothesis or theory. And what is it about? Well, when you read through Genesis chapter 1, maybe do it later on today, look at the subject of the verbs God created. God said. God saw. God called. God made. God blessed. God rested. Who's this about? It's about God. Genesis chapter 1 is about the Creator. Science, by its very nature, which observes the universe and the things in it, has to be about the things that were created. Not about the Creator. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 tells us the earth was formless and empty. So at the very beginning of the Bible, we're told, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and then we're immediately told the earth was formless and empty. Now, this leads us on to the six days of creation. Let's be clear, it's a literary construct not a scientific chronology. Days one, two, and three deal with the formlessness of the earth by giving it form. Days four, five, and six deal with the emptiness of the earth by filling it. And the patterns, the parallels, and the symmetry are really quite beautiful once they're pointed out to us. So on day one, God separates dark from light. On day two, he separates sky from sea, and on day three, he separates land from sea. On day four, he fills that which he created on day one, light and dark, with sun, moon, and stars. On day five, he fills that which he created on day two, sky and sea, he fills it with sea creatures and birds. And on day six, he fills that which he created on day three, land, by filling the land on day six with all land creatures and ultimately with man, male and female, in his image. God is a God of order. Genesis chapter one is telling us God is a God of order who fills his ordered space with ordered creatures. And science relies on this very fact. Science requires experiments to be repeatable. They are repeatable. Because God is a God of order. Science requires observations to be reliable and to lead to models that describe what's happening and predict what will happen next. This is only possible because God is a God of order. So what are the biblical claims about creation? First, it is God's work. God alone. It's an act of will not random chance. God created everything from nothing. We're to worship the creator, not the created. He is both sustainer and creator. He is a God of order. And do remember, it was good. It was very good. But it's not now, is it? And that's because of mankind's continuing and willful decision to ignore God and to ignore his word. So if that's what the Bible claims, why have recent events in the world of science thrust these claims into the spotlight? Well, first, let's consider February of this year. Just a couple of months ago, we had the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin, the author of On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection in which he set out his theory of evolution based on extensive observations of the natural world. There was lots of media hype around this event, most of which, I have to say, appeared to want to fan the flames of battle between science and faith. A lot of this could be down to the PR machine that surrounds Richard Dawkins, a contemporary evolutionary biologist and very public atheist. He demands... Dawkins demands that we choose evolution or God. It is ironic, perhaps, that he was not too long ago awarded the Faraday Award of the Royal Society because Faraday, a great scientist, said Christianity was the single greatest influence on his life. Let's first compare, or rather contrast, Dawkins with the original author, Darwin. Darwin was not a Christian. He lost his Christian faith when his daughter died, still a child. But in the final paragraph of five editions of The Origin of Species, all published in Charles Darwin's lifetime, the final sentence of the final chapter reads as follows. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers, having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one, creator with a capital C, Also, in a letter towards the end of his life, he wrote, I feel compelled to look to a first cause having an intelligent mind. I deserve to be called a theist. So Darwin clearly didn't see his science as an atheist's manifesto, which is what Dawkins has turned it into in the late 20th and early 21st century. But perhaps more impressively, listen to this. Dr. Francis Collins, who is a Christian, and a world-renowned geneticist, and I don't say that lightly. In 2003, he led the world research team that first sequenced the entire human genome. You may remember it was a big event, uh, lots of press coverage of that. He's a Christian, the man that led that research. He writes, To draw the conclusion that an acceptance of evolution requires an acceptance of atheism as a personal theology, as Dawkins does, is simply to go outside the evidence. Evolution is not a manifesto for atheism. Also, a second event in the world of science that put the biblical claims under the spotlight was September last year, when there was, again, a big media circus, especially on the BBC, around the switch-on of the Large Hadron Collider at the CERN Research Center on the Swiss-French border. This really is a colossal hadron collider. The hadrons are not large. They are very, very, very small. You can't even see them. But the collider they've built is enormous. 17 miles long, a tunnel, underground, with detectors placed around it, some of them the size of a seven-story building, underground, with a mass greater than the Eiffel Tower, sitting underground, and their purpose is this. Streams of subatomic particles, that's, your neutrons, electrons, photons, and so on, will be accelerated to speeds close to the speed of light. And then huge magnets will direct them to collide, to crash into each other. And these vast detectors are there to try and detect what conditions were like in the universe a tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang. Here's an aside for you. Big Bang. Einstein believed that his maths showed that gravity would cause the universe to collapse. But because he believed in a steady-state universe that is static, always has been, always will be, he devised something called the cosmological constant, which is a force acting against gravity to stop the universe simply collapsing. Later in his life, he admitted the cosmological constant was the biggest mistake of his scientific career. But who convinced him that it was a mistake to think that the universe was static? It was a Catholic priest. Monsignor George Lemaitre was an outstanding mathematician. He applied Einstein's equations to the cosmos and showed that in theory, the cosmos was expanding. This was then verified by Hubble a couple of years later. One of the interpretations of this expanding universe was that it must therefore have had a beginning. Now, who coined the phrase, Big Bang. A scientist called Fred Hoyle coined it on the radio in 1949. He was an atheist. He didn't like the theory of the Big Bang. He had a philosophical issue with it. Yes, the universe is expanding, but if you say that means it had a beginning, that implies it had a cause. And if you say it had a cause, that implies a creator. And Hoyle was a an atheist, so he couldn't condone this theory. And he coined the phrase Big Bang, which we now use all over the world to explain this theory. Back to France, back to Switzerland, our large Hadron Collider, scientists are hoping to detect something called the Higgs particle. You might have heard this in the news, or the Higgs boson. And it's sometimes called the God particle. The newspapers love to use this phrase. The scientists will find the God particle, as well as telling us they're going to create back black holes and we're all going to get sucked into Switzerland. I'm sure there are worse places to get sucked into. Now, the commentators in the press gave us the impression, they certainly gave me the impression, that the God particle was so named because if the scientists find it, that's it. It's all explained. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, But no need for God. We've found this particle. But let me reassure you, that's a complete misunderstanding of the phrase God particle. It was the Nobel Prize, winner, Nobel Prize winning physicist Leon Lederman who came up with the phrase God particle. And he says this. The Higgs particle is a presence in the universe that is keeping us from understanding the true nature of matter. It's as if something or someone wants to prevent us from attaining the ultimate knowledge. Now this he likened to God preventing the Babylonians from completing the Tower of Babel by confusing their languages so they couldn't understand how to finish this job off. The God particle is so named because of the story in Genesis chapter 11. It's nothing to do with Genesis chapter 1. In fact, Lederman himself says, if found, the Higgs particle will be a gift from God that will allow us to see how beautiful is the universe he created. This isn't the science of atheists. This is not an atheist's manifesto. Now, maybe this all feels a bit impersonal to you, or a bit remote. 14 billion years ago sounds like a fairly long time ago. Perhaps you feel it's academically remote, gluons and quarks and all this stuff. Let's make it personal. Question three, why is it important to me personally to believe in the God who creates Well, for this, we move into the New Testament. Don't need to look it up, but do listen carefully. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Yes, Christians look forward to Jesus' second coming. Revelation chapter 21 promises, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. God will make everything new. But we don't need to wait that long. Paul is telling us, God the creator is creating here and now. Whenever someone becomes a Christian, they are a new creation. When I became a Christian, I became a new creation. The old me was apart from God turned away from God and against God. But Paul says the new me is reconciled to God. This is all in the context of reconciliation, this verse. The new me is reconciled to God. It's facing towards God. The new me is with God. Now remember the biblical claims about creation. It is God's work and God's work alone. I cannot achieve reconciliation with God through my own efforts. Let's contrast our honorable members of parliament and Zacchaeus, the tax collector. If you're not familiar with the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, do download Johnny's sermon from a couple of weeks ago. If you're not familiar with the story about our MPs, welcome back to earth. Creation is God's work and God's work alone. I can't do it on my own. Did Zacchaeus come out of the house having met the living Lord Jesus and say, It's the Roman system. I need to sit down with the Romans and change the system because it's allowing me to fleece you guys and through gritted teeth to say, I'm really sorry. Tell you what, the bloke in charge has told me I've got to pay you back, so I'll pay you back. That's how we do it. That's the human response. But the new creation, Zacchaeus, no, nothing about blame. He just says, I'm going to give half of all I've got away. I'm going to find out everyone I've swindled and give them four times as much back. That's the new creation. That's the old gone, the new come. So it's God's work and God's alone. Remember also, we're told to worship the creator, not the created. So if I am a new creation, <laughs> shouldn't be worshipping myself. I should be worshipping the creator who created me. God sustains his creation he's promised us food now he promises us, promises us his holy spirit to sustain us in this new life and remember this his creation in his eyes is good it's very good so if any of you are sitting here knowing that this day you are in Christ you are a new creation you are a new species that's just appeared Imagine the excitement in the biological world if a new species popped up next to a biologist on the bus. That'd be staggering, wouldn't it? Not something we just had not found before, but a genuinely new species sitting next to you. Well, you might have one sitting next to you right now. A new creation. So, let us join the psalmist who wrote Psalm 136. Let's declare. I'll give you the words, then try and follow with me. Give thanks to God who made me a new creation, for his love has no end. Do you want to join me in that? Give thanks to God who made me a new creation, for his love has no end. Amen.